Testing, testing, testing. Three, two, one. Today we are joined by Jed Marley. Jed, you just closed on a house. How does it feel? It feels really good, man. I appreciate you bringing that up right off the bat. Um, <laughs> I looked for like seven months uh, and I just kept getting my offers beaten and finally uh, found one that made sense. So it feels really good to finally get it done. Yeah, congratulations. It's a big deal. You're the expert on cold emails, improving response rate, open rates. So we hold over. Um, so, Jack, you're, you're the head, head of outbound, outbound sales at Mailshake. Um, you have a fascinating story, and I think the audience is going to benefit from your perspective today. You talk about you in 2019, no sales degree, no experience. You moved across the country to take an apprenticeship. Why did you decide to get into sales? Yeah, so um, I was homeschooled growing up. I think that helps provide some context. So I was already kind of exposed to that non-traditional way of school, I guess. And I tried to play college basketball. I learned pretty quickly I was not athletic enough, not good enough. So that dream kind of fell away. Um, and I found this program called Praxis because there wasn't anything specific I wanted to go to school for. And Praxis, it's, it's not like a tech sales boot camp, but it's more of like a, a startup boot camp almost where they teach you to land a job at a startup. And I was actually, I did that boot camp for six months right out of high school. Um, I was applying to marketing jobs for two months because I wanted to get into marketing because I hated the idea of cold calling. And <laughs> don't we all? I was, <laughs> right. I don't know if you do. It seems like you like them. Um, but anyway, so I, I was applying for two months. Uh, I, I couldn't find a job. And then eventually I was like, let me just try sales. I think that's an easier way to get my foot in the door. Um, I found a, a position at, at PandaDoc. Um, it was a, you know, a fast growing startup and this was pre COVID. So obviously you had, you had to be in person. Um, and I, I drove down to Florida from Michigan, started working there and kind of things took off. I realized I actually don't mind cold calling as much. Um, so yeah. How tall are you? Six foot. Six foot. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm sure you've got a nice, uh, nice jumper. If you're trying to play college basketball at six foot, um, I, I know the height's important. Yeah, it's not bad. I, I, that was all I could do really. I was a shooter, you know, I just wasn't very athletic though. Well, luckily the height is a non-factor when it comes to cold calling sales, everything outbound because we're basically sitting here at our desk. As long as we have the capacity to call people, email people, it doesn't really matter what we look like. It's more so what we sound like, which, which I think is a cool aspect about it. What I'm curious about Jed, so you're big on LinkedIn. Um, you've, you've grown at these companies, um, in less than a year, you became a leading SDR at PandaDoc and you've built repeatable outbound sales playbooks, scripts, sequences. You talk a lot about your success and now you're building, um, an outbound team at Mailshake, which I think is really cool. I want to get into some of those tactics here today. So the audience can take away actionable advice and start applying it to find more success. But what I am curious about what we are, uh, chatting about before we got into it is the intersection between our corporate job sales and creating content influence and LinkedIn. And I think you're at the intersection of this with a lot of what you're doing with consulting for these different companies. So why don't you talk about how you view LinkedIn in the context of helping you generate pipeline slash building your personal brand? Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that question. I think so. First off, it, it started out with me just kind of following the process of learning out loud. So I got into sales and I was just trying to share the things I was learning and documenting that through like a newsletter I was writing and then through LinkedIn. Um, and I used that process to like retain information and also just have it documented somewhere. 
And then along the path, people started to kind of follow that. And I started noticing hey, people are providing advice. And there's, especially if you're in sales, there's lots of free advice. People want to help you out. So I started kind of leaning into that more, just asking questions like, hey, nobody's picking up the phone today. What do you guys do when no one's picking up the phone? <laughs> and just getting advice from people, right? And yeah. then eventually that advice turned into me applying that advice and then creating content around how I applied that advice. And so it grew into, and what I started to notice is as I learned out loud and just kept consistency with creating content, whether that was through my newsletter or through LinkedIn, people started to follow me and provide tons of value. So that was value in terms of like networking. So connecting me with other people, mentorships that like basically came to me as a result. Um, and then, you know, over three years, eventually it turned into like consulting offers or advisor roles and, you know, leveraging promotions, things of that nature. Um, but I think one of the biggest things too, and how I view LinkedIn to your question about how I view LinkedIn and um, creating content as a way to build pipeline is if you can, and this is part of the reason why I joined Mailshake because Mailshake is a cold email software and that was what my brand is, is around. So if you can find a company that aligns with the brand you've built and it's a long-term mm -hmm. process, right? It's not quick, but if you can find a company that aligns with the brand you built, it's the biggest hack of all time because then you're not promoting your company. You're just promoting, you're just, building stuff off your brand, you're talking about the things you normally talk about, but it relates to your company. So people are interested, they want to learn more and it, you know, equals pipeline for your company. So it was a strategic decision to join Mailshake for that reason, because I knew that the people following my content could also get value from the product that I would sell. So that's kind of like a next level thing to look at. And the way I view it is if you can align your brand and what you're interested in talking about with a company that you sell for, um, it can make things 10 times easier in terms of building pipeline. It sounds like you're multiple steps ahead and you're asking yourself, okay, how do we build the first step here of getting the initial following the brand? And then how does my buyer persona that I'm selling to begin to align with my personal brand and audience? And once you find that intersection, I imagine it becomes really exciting. I personally sell to HR leaders, but I also talk a lot about sales. So, that, so there's a bit of misalignment there that there's not necessarily as much shared synergy. In my experience with it is I've always believed that it doesn't matter if you're a top performer, if nobody knows who you are. There's a lot of people putting up big numbers, making calls, sending their emails, tons of pipeline. But if you don't have that brand, if people don't know, hey, Jed is setting meetings, this is what he's doing, then, then it doesn't necessarily help you as much as someone with that attention. And what I've personally felt, and I'm always interested in speaking with people like you who are in the arena, creating content, doing the sales thing, putting yourself at the risk of, of failing and, and being on that public stage is, I don't want to call it imposter syndrome, but it's it's acting like an expert when you may not actually be the expert. And that's how I feel all the time. And you had a post talking about this, about you were coaching cold emailing in front of 100 people and you got this <laughs> response from a chief revenue officer. And he basically said, quote unquote, this is the worst outbound email I've ever received. But you're about to go into an audience <laughs> to talk about cold emailing. And, and I feel that all the time when I'm not necessarily hitting quota and I'm talking to other people about, hey, this is how to hit quotas. So it, it can be a tough divide, but you talk about if you're not getting any negative feedback, then you're doing something wrong, you're playing it too safe. So why don't you talk about that feeling of acting like the expert, whether it be in your sales job, creating content or in your life, when you may not have the credentials because we're both pretty young guys earlier in our career, just trying to make it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm only, I, I don't, there's so much I don't know. Like I'm, I'm you know, barely <laughs> three years into my career. So it's like, yeah, it's it's tough, man, because I think it goes back to that learning out loud thing, which is where there's a key. If you decide to create content online or build a brand, um, people are going to naturally follow people that sound authentic. 
And so there's a key way in, ter of, in terms of how you should frame your content, right? So I try to follow the path of like, hey, this is what I'm doing, it works for me. It may not work for you, it might, but I just wanted to share it like, here you go. Instead of, oh, this is what you should do. I'm the best at this. I know how to write every cold email perfectly. Like, this is how you do it. Everybody follow my process. So like, it's a, there's a key difference in terms of how you share content. And so I always try to follow that first path, which is just sharing ideas that are just actually working for me. And as long as I can continue to just only share what's working with me and be honest and authentic in that, then it's okay. Cause I'm I, like, that's it. Right. And I think people who are afraid to start creating content don't understand. I like the point that you made where, um, you don't have to be a top performer. They don't understand that, you know, when you create content, it's about who you're creating content for. Like if you are a first month SDR, you can create content and build a brand around landing an SDR job because there's thousands yeah. of people that want to get that SDR job. If you're an AE, even if you're a bottom performing AE, but you just got promoted from SDR to AE, there are tens of thousands of SDRs who want to get promoted from SDR to AE and they want to hear how you did it. So share content for those people. So just look back six months, a month or a year before, those are the people you're creating content for. And it's hard, you, you can't really have imposter syndrome when you're doing that because as long as you're not trying to create content for the people that are three years ahead of you, um, that, at least that's what I try to remind myself, you know? And the other thing on imposter syndrome that I wanted to say as well is that um, I think as with anything in life, like if you're not uncomfortable, then you're probably not pushing yourself enough. So I always try to remind myself, because I get imposter syndrome all the time, that it's a good thing. It means you're pushing yourself. It means that, you know, you're doing the right thing. You're moving in the right direction. I've always found those posts too that you really question should I put this out there or not are oftentimes the one that the ones that perform best because you almost feel like you're doing something wrong but it, it, it is authentic and true to who you are and I've always believed to your point I am I am at this point in, in my career I'm there's different phases there's different chapters and I'm trying to capture the audience and add value to people just a chapter or two behind me because they want to get to where, where I want to go. And then I want to get to the enterprise rep, to the VP of sales, business, whatever. And then there's people creating content for that. So I think that's an important call out you had. So as we get into some more tactical prospecting and, and, and sales strategy, you talked about, and, and we're creating for SDRs out there for the most part, because we're a bit ahead of those folks and you're even hiring for those folks. So you have a great perspective on this, but you talked about for the SDRs out there that are waiting to promote to AE, um, you said that learning prospecting is a bulletproof skill. And this is what I've felt as well. If you can master top of the funnel in, in all things pipeline generation, that will alleviate a lot of the problems you'll experience as an account executive when it comes to working the deals. And you may not be the best at demoing, closing, but if you have a lot of pipeline, um, winning will cur uh, cure a lot of that. So why don't you talk about the importance of being able to prospect well? Yeah, I mean, you nailed it with when you're an AE, it solves all your problems, right? Um, you don't have to rely on an SDR. You don't have to rely on inbound leads. Um, I think the importance is a lot of people get into SDR positions. You'll see it happen where, oh, I couldn't get promoted in six months, so let me go to a new company and try to get promoted there. And they're just focused on how do I be an AE? How do I be an AE? That's all they want to do. But I th And I think there's almost like a negative connotation on the SDR role. Like it's not as, you know, high, it's, it's not regarded as well as like an, an account executive role. Um, I think people, and it's hard, it's easier said than done, of course, it's hard to say, but you should be patient in the role and really try to feel like you've mastered it. Like mm -hmm. I can control hitting quota. And then think about every month, look at the last month, look at all the opportunities you created, the meetings you set and say, where did most of my meetings come from? And then how can I make this more efficient next month? Because when I'm an AE, I'm gonna have, you know, way less time to create these meetings. So you always wanna be 
thinking like an AE, but understanding the importance of the SDR role, which is it's going to, you know, whether you decide to be an AE or leave sales or whatever you do, it is a bulletproof skill prospecting, setting meetings, you know, being able to handle that objection, uh, that type of rejection. So if you're in the role for a year or two years, um, it's going to help you in the long run. But like the key is, again, always trying to think, how can I be more efficient? How can I be more efficient? Where can I find repeatable patterns? And that comes with like taking time once a week, once a month to be retrospective and just um, like look back at the last month, analyze things and, and try to be more efficient for the next month. What has that experience been like for you um, taking the apprenticeship at, at, at um, PandaDoc originally, fast growing company, learning the ropes, and now you're about three, four months into leading outbound efforts um, at Mailshake. So why don't you talk about that iteration for you as a rep, mastering the prospecting, but also now becoming a pseudo leader and building out this motion for an organization? Yeah, so at PandaDoc, when I joined, it was similar to where Mailshake's at now, which is where uh, inbound was really strong, but they hadn't really built uh, like a sophisticated outbound motion. So I kind of joined it, you know, I was lucky to join at a time where I became an outbound SDR. It was brand new. So I was just scouring the internet, looking on LinkedIn, podcasts, trying to, you know, implement new tactics. And then, you know, naturally because of that, you know, we started to see some some repeatable processes in terms of outbound. I was able to get promoted uh, to, you know, to team lead and then end up managing the SDR team. Um, and so that taught me a lot about like how to build a successful outbound team and how to have a team of SDRs. So then when I went to Mailshake and did it from True Zero, um, it, it was definitely a, uh, a different process because it's a that process of going from a larger startup or a larger company to a much smaller uh, you know, bootstrapped uh, startup company. It's way it's not different. Easy. There's, yeah, there's nobody above you that's that can say like we didn't have that type of inbound that we had at, at Pandadox. There's nobody above you that you can really look to. You kind of all that weight kind of falls in yourself. Um, and so and when, you're, it's, and when you're calling and you call and you know and you say, hey, does the name Pandadoc ring a bell, for example? And you know that it probably doesn't ring a bell. They never heard of you. And I think that that creates some additional challenges as well, because inbound, they're coming to you. There's some interest, but then outbound, you're going to them cold, interrupting their day. And they don't know who you are to begin with, which just adds to the challenge of it. Yeah, it makes it way different. But that was part of the reason why I wanted to join a smaller startup, too, is because I wanted to prove to myself I could do it at mm. different scales, right? I want to be able to create my own company one day. So if I can do it at a smaller scale um, and I could build something successful in that learning experience, it's going to be incredible, incredibly valuable for me long term. What um, kind of company do you want to create? I don't know yet. Uh, that's why I wanted to join, get into sales. It's just to learn about business in that sense. So when I have a company that I'm passionate about, uh, I have the skills that can kind of help me build that, take me in that direction. It's, it's important, man. So, something I like to talk a lot about on this channel is thinking big. There's no limitations. You, you basically can have virtually anything you want, but not everything. So I think it's being focused on what are those things you truly want. Um, and you can have as much or as little as you want. And speaking of sales being bulletproof, I've always felt like being able to sell well, um, it, it's it's always it always will be in demand in the market let's say you go create a company and it, it fails whatever you could then go back and get another sales job and it's not like this will be automated anytime soon there's always money in it and if you want to start a business you have to be a sales guy first and foremost even if you have the yeah. greatest product you eventually have to take it to market so when we think about emailing i know that cold email is something that that that's one of your specialties um in your subject line in linkedin it says low open rates response rates click 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 below so why don't you talk about some of those those main frameworks you have or just how you approach cold emailing i i know the the 
the surface level ones or should I customize, should I not customize, should I send a lot of auto versus versus more targeted? So I don't want to necessarily talk about that. I want to talk about how you think about cold emailing and what are the missed opportunities that, that folks um, aren't seeing today. Yeah. Um, so when I think about cold emailing, uh, the, you know, one of the biggest things in terms of like how I always set up cold emails for whatever SDR team I've run is it's built around triggers, right? So the, the first thing you should do if you're an SDR or you're trying to build out like a cold email motion or trying to see success with it is look at like your inbound lead flow if you have that and try to see why are people coming inbound. And so like this is something I did at Pandadoc where I noticed, oh, people are coming inbound for our e-signature software because they're scaling a sales team or they you know the director of revenue options just uh, revenue operations just joined the company three months ago so you start finding these buying finding these buying triggers like somebody's new to the company or they're scaling a sales team and then when you're going outbound you just kind of reverse what you found from inbound and use that in your cold emails so like in terms of the framework i follow i think one of the biggest things people are missing out on for cold emails is starting with a buying trigger for all of your cold emails Mm -hmm. um and you know that allows you to not have to worry about customization and we're not talking about the idea of customization versus relevance or personalization and relevance but um, starting with a buying trigger when you're leading with your 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 cold emails has created the most success for me because it allows me to spend less time on the cold email and just have a super short relevant email and that's kind of the most important thing that kind of goes into any cold email i'm sending out what are some examples of buying triggers yeah, so it can be specific to the company, um, but a really simple one is, you know, if you sell to salespeople, if they just had a new sales leader that joined, right? Or they had somebody that got promoted from account executive to a sales manager or sales manager to a director. And so you set up these, um, these reminders in Sales Navigator so you get notified whenever somebody at one of your accounts gets promoted to these positions, joins a company, um, or, you know, keep track of all the customers you have and set up notifications so that when somebody leaves a customer organization and joins a uh, decision maker role in another company, you can reach out to them there. So that's another buying trigger. Um, again, maybe you sell to HR people and you, you, you can set up notifications for when people are starting to hire more in HR at, at a certain company. So like these are the buying triggers I'm looking at, you know, scaling companies, uh, people got promoted, they just joined, uh, joined the role. Um, there's other specific ones depending on the company. Like I'll give you an example for Mailshake. Um, a big thing we solve is email deliverability. So I can look at somebody's domain and kind of determine what your email deliverability is or if you're on any blacklist. So that's a buying <laughs> trigger for me. I can say that to you. So there's specific things to your company that's not gonna apply to everybody. Obviously that's a company specific example. But again, you find these triggers by looking at your inbound leads, looking at your current customers and asking yourself, why did they buy and really digging into the opportunity notes. It sounds like you're artificially creating warmth in a way because we are outbound is is a cold motion. If I get a call from a friend and it, uh, Jim appears on the phone, I know Jim, I'm gonna answer. But if I get a call from an unknown number, I don't know who it is. So when I get an email from Jed, I, I don't know who Jed is. Um, I don't know what he's trying to sell. Maybe I take the time to read it or not read it. So it's cold. So what you're doing is artificially warming it up by using that compelling event of, hey, uh, your company just got funding. Hey, could be exciting time to invest in this solution. Hey, you just congrats on the recent promotion. Um, may maybe this is more of a priority for you. Hey, um, you guys are looking to expand your sales team. Let you need this tool to go do that. So you're almost pulling in. So you're, you're doing some research to find this information 
and then you're you're portraying it to them in a way to warm it up is that is that the strategy yeah exactly and there's two actually i'll talk about two methods as well in terms of uh turning cold leads into warmer leads one that not a lot of people talk about is um like going into sales navigator going under the connections of filter and finding people that are connected with your ceo or your executive team lots of times they have lots of relationships lots of connections so you can lead your email with hey i saw you're connected with mm -hmm. my ceo maybe you're already familiar with mailshake and then jump in your email or look at the opportunity notes maybe an sdr before you called somebody else at the company so then when you open your call you open your email you can say hey we were in touch with so-and-so your company. And again, that's like leading with your email. So people are gonna open that or leading in your cold call and it creates warmth. It makes it feel like less of a, less of a cold call to your point. Another compelling strategy you shared on LinkedIn was multi-threading emails. And let's say you're targeting a VP of sales, for example, or a VP or decision maker at whatever company you're targeting and they're not responding, which oftentimes they're not responding. So you decide to go a layer deeper or a level down in the hierarchy, and now you're targeting the director of sales who, who we can assume probably reports to the VP of sales. And, and you're opening it by saying, hey, director of sales, not sure if VP of sales already sent you this. So you're, you're making an educated assumption of, and almost asserting this is relevant and interesting to you. Um, if you get the same results with the director, repeat this process with others in the organization. So you're basically using that understanding of the organizational hierarchy to try and get in the door. Yeah, so if I have like, a, you know, if we're talking about like mid-market enterprise accounts, I'm going to attack that account, account all over and use that type of strategy. And so that's exactly right. Like you'll, if, if the VP is opening a bunch of emails but not responding, I'm just gonna go to their, to their direct report and say, not sure if they already sent you this and it's just recycling that process with everybody. And then their director might tell me, hey, yeah, not a fit, um, uh, you know, not a fit, but we already use XYZ software, or maybe I catch them on the phone and they say, you know, not a fit, whatever. They give me any piece of information. <laughs> I'm on paternity leave. If, if I get like, if they say, hey, don't call me right now, I'm on paternity leave, then I go email somebody else and say, hey, it sounds like Trent's on paternity leave. Are you handling this while he's out? So I'm yeah. keeping a web of all this information. And then when I go to the next person, I'm just making that first line of my email, that first line of my cold call, even more relevant and sounding like I really know what's going on in the organization because I know Trent's on paternity leave. And you know I know that you guys use this software. And then finally, when you get to that last person, that decision maker, you have all this information that makes it really impactful to set a meeting. Whenever you start speaking their language, the messaging tends to resonate more. And, and it sounds like that's what you're doing. And another creative example of this is what you talked about, how you book meetings with out of office emails. It's, yeah. it's easy to get that out of office email and, and then you, you're complacent. You say, okay, I'll, I'll just archive it. I'll get back to them and they get back. I, outreach will tell me to reach back out to them in three days, whatever. You talked about whenever you get that, that bounce per se out of office email, for example, if it's a bounce from the VP, you can then email that director and you use that as, hey, wow, they're out. Could you help, could, could, could you help me get in contact with the right person? Or maybe you're the right person. Exactly. Yeah, out of office emails are a huge missed opportunity. Um, and there's so much you can do with it. You can use that strategy to then almost use it as a referral to their direct reports. Um, of course, in a LinkedIn post, I'm not saying they referred me to you, but I'm just saying, yeah. hey, while they're out of office, that's the biggest <laughs> keys. You don't want to be dishonest. Uh, and you know the LinkedIn trolls will get you or get me if I, uh, if I say that. But um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's one of the big ones. But then the other one as well is, yeah, you're using the referral, but keep a list of all the people who you don't have phone numbers for, for example, 
and just like hold that list somewhere else. Like, oh, if I can only get in contact with Trent, you know, I don't have his phone number, I can't find it on Zoom Info, Elite, Elite IQ, whatever. If I can only get in touch with Trent, I know I could book a meeting. So you keep a list of those people, and then when the next holiday rolls around, you just send emails out to all of them. You'll get those out of office bounces back, and then you find lots of times at least half of them will have their mobile number in there. And so then I can call those people like over the following weeks and, and kind of set meetings with them. So that's kind of like another little strategy with outbound or out of office emails. But yeah, they're a huge missed opportunity in my opinion. A big problem I've been facing is when I add these prospects to my sequence in, in, in my outreach automatically, there's this line item that says, if you would like to opt out, press this link. And, and, and I'm not sending just mass spam emails. I'm adding a prospect to a sequence. The first step may be a, a manual email. So I, I have messaging ready. I may customize it a bit, but they can still technically opt out so that going forward, all future emails will bounce. What I've been doing to try and overcome this is if I, if I notice that, I'll add the prospect to a, a call only sequence frequent <laughs> because in my head, I have gotten their attention to the point where they're either annoyed with me or, or they, they don't think it's relevant, but they haven't told me that. But to me, that's a, that's a, that's a buying signal because they're, they at least have acknowledged my presence. So I want to add them. I want to call them relentlessly now because they know who I am. How, how do you approach that? If you feel like your emails aren't going through, or maybe they, they start blocking your emails. Yeah. Well, that, that's a really good strategy. I haven't done that yet, but I mean, that's the thing is that everybody like you and me will probably respond to our, we're salespeople. So we'll respond to our phones. We'll respond to LinkedIn. We're both active on LinkedIn. We'll respond to emails, but not everybody's responsive on all three channels. And so it's just testing out the all three channels and potentially more just to see where they're most responsive. So, I mean, that's why you have to have a multi-channel approach. Um, but, you know, if they're not active on LinkedIn, don't reach out to those people. Start with, you know, email and phone. But I mean, that's exactly right. Like if they're, if they're blocking your email, um, <laughs> you know, you, you got to pivot to something like LinkedIn or phone. Or what I might do is, you know, if, if they're not, you know, seeing my emails, it's just, hey, when I reach out on LinkedIn, it's just, hey, sent over an email to XYZ email address. Did you get a chance to take a look at that? So you're pointing them to the other channels. You're leaving voicemails is pointing them to the emails or you're leaving voicemails is pointing them to a LinkedIn inbox if they're not answering your email. So you wanna like utilize all the channels to point them back to the different ones and kind of figure out from there which one they're gonna be more responsive on. Fantastic. Well, we're, for those of you listening, you're gonna have to go back and rewatch the last 10 minutes and take some notes. Jed shared a lot of great insights for getting more meetings, getting emails. The last five minutes here, because I imagine a lot of folks have dropped off. I wanna chop it up a bit. What we were beginning to get into before we started recording is just everyone needs to have a personal brand. These companies have brands. I respect the companies like Gong, for example, that it seems like they encourage their employees to just post online and support one another. Some companies don't encourage that. And then a lot of employees may not try and elevate those employees who are actually posting because maybe they're jealous or maybe they're not active or they just don't like it. How, how do you how do you think about this in the future as someone who wants to start a company as someone that's entrepreneurial that's worked at startups um how do you see just this 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 shift from from going from people working at companies to each per each employee is their own brand inside and outside that company and i know you embody this by posting so how do you think about that landscape evolving over the next few years about people needing their own personal brand or the importance of it yeah, I mean, I think people are starting to notice more and more how powerful it is, especially in the example earlier where you can connect your personal brand with the company you're selling for. 
Um, and, and there's kind of a shift, right? Like you said earlier, there's always a demand for salespeople. And so it's kind of like, I mean, when I interviewed for Mailshake, I, there was no resume involved. It was just LinkedIn was my resume. LinkedIn kind of is the new resume. So credibility, it, instant credibility. Exactly. It's instant credibility. Um, building your brand will help you just, it's a networking app after all. So it'll connect you with new people. You know what I mean? There's, there's relationships you can create through that that will lead to job opportunities. And so I think, um, yeah, I think the biggest one is that it's like the resume is starting to fade away. And now it's like your online presence is your new resume and it'll kind of help you skip certain steps in the interview process if you have that brand. And I think more and more people are starting to notice this. And it seems like, you know, to your point earlier as well, that, you know, companies are noticing that as well. And as a result, like, you know, they understand that it's not as much about submitting a resume. They're, they're, they're looking at your presence. They're looking at LinkedIn. They're trying to find referrals in that sense. So it's just going to be more and more important in my opinion. Um, and I think people are starting to realize that. I agree. And I think there's a big opportunity for collaboration in this space because a lot of people operate in silos and they have their own platform and presence and direct to their audience, which is important. But I think there, there's there's so much power in getting together and, and collaborating with others. And, and that's one of the, the ways you got on my radar. I saw that you had done this content house thing per se with, with mm -hmm. Morgan Ingram from, from JB Sales at the time. I, I saw Devin from Gong and, and these I act like I know these guys. I don't know them. I just see them and, and, <laughs> and you and you know them because you, you you see them online. So talk talk about your experience with that content house. Yeah, that was really cool. So I mean I started creating when I started creating content at some point, I guess I got on uh, Morgan Ingram's radar and then he had reached out to me and then I did a webinar and then as a result I started helping write their newsletter. And then naturally, um, they decided to create this kind of content house for like uh, LinkedIn influencers or whatever. And they invited me out to go there. I was nervous as hell because it's this is giant mansion that they had rented out on Airbnb. And it was, like you said, big people who I, I feel like I know, but I don't really know Morgan, Devin, whatever. And, um, uh, and there were some other great contents as well. Shout out to uh, Gabriel Blackwell and a bunch of other great people. But anyways, when I got there, um, it was super fun, but they had a professional camera crew. We were shooting YouTube videos, we were shooting webinars, and it was live in-person stuff. And I had never done that before. Um, and so it was a, it really pushed me and it helped me create better content. And um, I know they're gonna continue to do stuff like that, but yeah, it only helps when other kind of creators get together and collaborate, because then you're exposing each other to, to your audiences. Um, and you see that happening in other places outside of SaaS sales, you know, YouTubers collaborate. So why shouldn't SaaS sales content creators collaborate, you know? Um, so I think they're really kind of ahead of the game in, in that sense, JV sales and what they're creating. Agree. That's what I'm starting to see as well is, is that intersection between content, personal life and, and with people working from home and this whole remote work. And as we think about the future of the workplace the intersection between that work and personal life are, are more blended than ever. And traditionally you look at these B2B companies, they're boring, they have a lame person running Twitter and they say, hey, go buy our Frosties, whatever. And, and now it's these personal brands within these companies and that's how people now know these companies. And it, it's it's making things more, business more relatable and personal in a way, which, which I think is unique. Um, why don't we end with what were some of your key lessons or learnings from being surrounded by some of these other, and it's it's funny to say out loud, LinkedIn influencers, but it really is becoming a thing because you get this massive distribution and to an audience where you can you can drive business, which is oftentimes more valuable than direct to the consumer because businesses have more money. So why don't you talk about some of your key lessons and takeaways from being surrounded by LinkedIn influencers? Yeah. 
I'll talk about two of them. So one of them is a communication thing, which is when you're in front of a camera crew and you're filming YouTube videos and it's a professional environment, they will nitpick every little thing you do. So I learned that I had little ticks where when I started out on a video, I would say, all right, so, and then jump into the video. And I'm sure maybe you ah. run into these things, Trent, where you're recording YouTube videos and you notice these little ticks. But I was always, I'd always done webinars, YouTube videos or whatever, but I was afraid to listen back to them. Like, it's hard to listen back to your cold calls. It's hard to listen back to like, yes. you know, speaking engagements and stuff like that. But I realized the importance of that because um, I didn't know about these ticks until people who are watching me live told me to my face, but I would have known about that if I had spent time to spent the time to like listen back to my previous recordings. Would they That's stop the... you with this when you're sitting there and you'd say, oh, yeah. all right, so let's get into it Would they'd say, okay, okay, pause. And you're in front of everyone else. Like, okay, Jed, um, let's not say that to begin and let's try something else. And you're thinking, oh man, I didn't know I even said that. So is that, is that how it works? It was, yeah, it was tough. Like the first video it took, it was like a three minute video, probably took an hour because they were just trying to get these ticks out of me, you know? All these speaking takes so yeah uh it was not fun but it was it was much needed and that's what i've experienced so i've posted over 650 videos and for the for the first 600 of them i edited them, them them all myself so i had to go back and listen to myself and when i'm recording it takes me probably 20 to 30 tries just to get the first 20 seconds right and then once i get rolling then i'm in it and then it's there's no problem it's just that start and 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 you say you don't say it how you want it to and then you restart it and then you keep messing up um, so I, I relate with that as well. It sounded like you may have had another le a second lesson before I interrupted you. Oh yeah. Um, what's the saying? Your network or your net network is your net worth, net worth or whatever. Like I've always heard of that saying and stuff, but like after that kind of content house collaboration experience, I, I kind of really understood uh, understood like the meaning behind that or like the importance of that. Uh, because after that content house, like there were so many relationships that got built from just you know being introduced to Devin being introduced to Morgan and the other people there and just they connect me with others and that really starts to spread you know you connect with people they'll connect you with somebody else and it just opens up a lot of opportunities so I think yeah that collaboration opportunity and and, and meeting with them um, it opened up a lot of doors in the six months since that's happened um, obviously like we're doing this this podcast now so it's another example of how that works but um, yeah that was another big learning from it you can't even quantify the impact of it. And that, that truly is how you originally got on my radar. And I instantly said, I don't know who this guy is, but he's got credibility. He looks like he knows what he's talking about. Okay. And that, and that, boom, that's that. And then all of a sudden platform and, and, and it leads to, leads to this. So um, for those of you who want to connect with Jed, I'm going to put your LinkedIn down below. I know you have a link to your newsletter uh, there as well. Um, go connect, go connect with Jed, let him know what you thought of the podcast, um, support him. Of course, if you guys enjoyed today's episode, subscribe now, if you're not already leave a review, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, I never plugged that, but leave a review, leave a comment <laughs> for the algorithm. Talk to you guys in the next episode.